You're telling me you're like the only New Yorker who in the late 70s, early 1980s, nobody was like, hey man, let's go down to this club on the Lower East Side called CBGB's and we'll go see some music. What I think happened, not that I would have been there any, oh, I'm sorry, what happened is that our first child was born in 1978. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and my life returned. <laughs> but you used to be a taxi driver, so did, did, did uh, ever okay. some punks get into the car and say, take me to CBGB's old man? You know... When, I don't know about the old man stuff. Probably <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I uh, at the beginning of my cab driver career in 71, 72, 73, I drove nights, and then I switched to days. And so that this, the scene stuff is much more transparent at night. You yeah, know, during sure. the day, you're taking people back and forth to work and stuff like that, yeah. or doctor's appointments. Which did you like more, the night shift or the day shift? It's really interesting. The night after rush hour breaks, it's 8 o'clock, whatever, okay, it becomes much easier to do it, to drive, because the streets are emptier, traffic is not crazy. You drive during the day, and for what, what happened over time was that because of the pressure from the fleet owners, they were concerned not only about how much money you put on the meter, but they also were concerned with how few miles you drove. They mm. wanted to reduce the kind of the ratio between money and miles. Because there was the initial fare that you paid to get in. They wanted you there doing nice short trips. Right, and, and you get more and more of them. Yeah. And also that you're not using up as much gas and other kinds of things. And so that the only way you could do that, respond to the pressures, was by staying in Manhattan. Right. And when I first started driving, my garage was in uh, Greenpoint, and I lived in, in uh, my garage was in Long Island City, right? and I lived in Greenpoint. Mm. And so on Sundays, I would spend the entire day either in Queens or in Bed-Stuy driving people back and forth to church. Wow, um, okay. And it was just a, a very nice way to spend time, mm. as opposed to picking someone up on East uh, 83rd Street, right. driving them down to Wall Street, and yeah. then going back up and get another fare at East yeah. 83rd you Street. You didn't have the, the Travis Bickle experience. <laughs> no, no, I did not. <laughs> you you didn't have the, what what was the show? Was it called Taxi? What was the one where they had the oh, yeah. Taxi Depot? It was the comedy from the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Did no. you like it? <clears throat> well, actually, that's... I did because I grew up in Brooklyn. Sunset, you probably have, I've read about, written about that in Sunset Park. We didn't have a car when we, I was young, and so my dad worked on the subways, and so we went everywhere by subway or bus. So I really I knew how what the underground of the city looked like, but I had no idea what the above ground looked like. <laughs> so for the first few years, the opportunity existed for me to learn the city, yeah, you know, right. to kind of how it all fit together. Although. It's interesting coming here today and in a few other times when I've been over here. I mean, I, I very seldom came here, even though I knew Greenpoint, but uh, that it kind of any parts of the city which don't have any numbered streets are very, very difficult to learn how to navigate. Cabbie, right? yeah. No GPS, no right, none of right. that stuff. Yeah. This is all. Did you, did you have like an atlas? It was a, there was a, yeah, there was a, a, an atlas that basically had snapshot mat, uh, maps of small sections of the city, uh-huh. each one adjacent to the right, next right. one. So you could piece things together, but imagine coming here, how you would explain to someone to drive here. It's right. not the easiest thing no. in the world at all. And also the um, the amount of people who would be working around here in the light manufacturing sort of industrial areas who would be taking a cab to work probably wouldn't be that high either. That's right? probably true too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there were kind of there was there was an industrial area like this in Long Island City back then. There was one in Greenpoint. 
There was one certainly in Williamsburg, and there was one out in Sunset Park. They call it Industry City now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, although that, that actually had a bit more almost heavy industry. Uh, I mean, there was an American machine and foundry plant, an American can company plant. Uh, there still is a residue of small light manufacturing in Sunset Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's that famous big uh, albatross that hangs over that west side of Brooklyn by the water, which is the old grain silos, uh-huh. which were built, I think, by the city as like a public works program. The but, ones that are down in Red Hook? Yeah, in Red Hook. Oh, they, yeah. were, they were like uh, antiquated like before they they came up, basically. So uh-huh. this thing has sat fallow for like 80 years. Mm-hmm. The idea, I think, was to get grain coming down from upstate and then bring it in. But I think by the time they completed it, containerization or something had happened mm-hmm. already. So they just kind of this 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 uh, aging ruin, mm-hmm. this hulk that like kind of lies over that part of Brooklyn, which hey. shows this sort of industrial past and the ways in which the city... <laughs> And the state tried to do developmentalism in the past. It wasn't always like the Port Authority was like this big developmental authority, this little fiefdom right. that was doing things. It used to be a much more sort of like grounded process. There's a lot of private investment too. Like the Queensboro Bridge was just like a corporation started and built a bridge, right? Right. The, the, the subway tunnels, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The Hudson tubes, you know, were built by the uh, Pennsylvania Railroad, I believe. Bob Moses came along and uh, put it in the people's hands. Put it in the people's hands. That's Sort right. of. <laughs> Actually, there's a, did you guys, either of you see the movie called Citizen Jane? About Jane Jacobs? Jane Jacobs, Did yeah. not see it, no. Oh, so... This, I mean, I, I read The Death and Life of Great American Cities 50 Classic years text, ago yeah. uh, and was, you know, very much taken by it. Uh, and then people like Bob Fitch, who wrote a lot about the destruction of the old New York, relied on Jacob's foundational work. But one of the things that's really quite remarkably ironic about the documentary, which is quite good in some ways, is at the end, the last battle that Jane Jacobs fought was against the a lower Manhattan Expressway, which yeah. would connect the Hudson, uh, the Holland Tunnel to the like, Manhattan Bridge and whatever on the east side, and would have basically taken a chunk out of what is now Tribeca and Little Italy. Those beautiful well, old steel buildings where all the, the shops used to be. The irony, of course, is what she managed to do is she saved it for the gentrifiers. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it effectively got destroyed as the kind of neighborhood that she had celebrated even though physically it had been preserved and wasn't destroyed for uh, an expressway. My grandfather was working in a print shop down there in the Tribeca, Soho area, and his job was being eliminated right as the big campaign to stop Lomax happened. So it like, I think there is something deeply ironic, like the Jane Jacobs vision of urbanism ends up matching very well with what we could call like the Richard Florida Mm -hmm. vision of urbanism. And it's like this classic conundrum this classic it's like, like paradox the, the keep of the blank weird uh yeah. thing of when we were kids like i don't know if you remember this there when like urban gentrification really was hitting full force in like the early 2000s you know when sean and i moved to new york people would wear these shirts with a slogan like keep portland weird keep austin weird or defend brooklyn yeah. defend new orleans and there'd be like a gun on it yeah or like a skull with a mohawk like very, something really scary looking very vice magazine but what did that actually mean it meant um all of the quirky like dive bars and like weird hip art galleries and like vegan restaurants like that's what we like about this neighborhood and that was their concept of fighting gentrification was keeping it weird 
But of course, the weirdness is what higher and higher income brackets of people like because yeah. they want to live someplace interesting yeah. and authentic <clears throat> and someplace to like you can have fun after work. And so now Williamsburg is just not cool or weird <laughs> at all anymore. Uh, and part of it was because the the marketing of anti-gentrification was part of what drew people to live there. And fucking the whole keep Austin weird thing, which we all remember. Anyone who's been to Austin have seen those signs everywhere. Austin stayed weird. Till the point where Elon Musk and this gentrification process, now it's so unweird in Austin, so gentrified that Elon Musk has decided, because his corporate offices are there, to build a company town outside right. of Austin. So maybe... Snail town. Snail town, yeah. But the Jane Jacobs thing is fascinating because it's like this like tragic paradox of the petty bourgeoisie, which is that like Jane Jacobs' notion of the city could never be a generalizable one. You know, like Richard Florida's vision of like the creative class coming and creating walkable, dynamic, creative cities can never be a generalizable one because under class society, not everybody can live that lifestyle. Petty property, small property cannot actually be generalized. In fact, there's a tendency, as we've seen in urbanism with the rise of the CVS, Dwayne Reed uh, Chase Bank complex with all the retail to actually undermine and destroy the basis for petty bourgeois life and the sort of walkable, livable, quirky, weird cities that Jane Jacobs was arguing for. You know, I think you're probably right. The one kind of not contrary but somewhat different perspective is take Brooklyn as a whole, mm. just for, which I've spent almost my entire life in. And it's it's quite amazing how much of Brooklyn is built to the right scale for human populations, all right? You, and you have, you know, so I grew up in Sunset Park, a neighborhood of small tenements and a lot of two- and three-family homes, which were at that time owned all but entirely by workers. I mm -hmm. mean, there, there were handfuls of doctors and dentist offices, stuff like that. And the, the real estate value of those buildings changed hardly at all over relatively lengthy periods of mm. time. So if my, my father's uncle, who also worked for the subways, owned a house, you know, either you know, down the block from where we eventually lived, and, my, and then when he died, my father inherited it. And I think this was probably in 19... Late eighties, early nineties, and um, I think my father sold it for something around twenty five thousand yeah. dollars, which was probably only about ten thousand dollars more than his uncle had spent yeah. thirty years before. So that real estate didn't have a kind of a built in escalator value. It seemed to me, in comparison to what it became subsequently, which you know kind of was just mindless. You know, kind of, uh, I mean, they they sold. A, we live on Seventeenth Street now. They sold a house next door to us. This family had to move back to England for $3.2 million. All right? <laughs> After owning it for maybe six or seven years. Uh, and that's, that's driven by something. That's, that's driven by processes much larger than Brooklyn or New York City. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's global money. It's, yeah. That's, you know... Australian pension fund money. Yeah, yeah, the teachers in Australia. Blame teachers. Should we talk about uh, the global financial collapse that's happening right now? <laughs> is it happening? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You tell me. Is, the, the bank is, I was surprised that the bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, was like the 40th largest bank in the country. I heard that's, 12. I heard, I heard the 12th largest regional The second largest bank. bank collapse in U.S. history. That I know as well. 
This is no small potatoes. It's no small potatoes. And the, very, the reason why I may be dubious about this being a repeat of 2008, not because I don't think that the entire financial system and the capitalist order in general is riven with crisis tendencies right now, it's because, and maybe this is, it's the canary in the coal mine, but it filled a very particular niche in, like, in, in banking and the accumulation process. Like its crisis is a crisis ultimately of Silicon Valley and like quote unquote tech itself. You know, the fact that this bank sat at the intersection between all this startup money that's flying around, the venture capital money that's flying around, all sorts of like bubbly, frothy assets that are existing, these profitless corporations that have been um, proliferating in that area for so long. It's hard to tell at this moment in time because. Bank, you know, when the when things open up tomorrow, we're recording on a Sunday. We'll see what actually happens. Whether this causes, whether it's contained or it causes some sort of systemic mess, it's possible that it remains contained because it's this very interesting sort of intersection of, uh, let's say, banking in general, and then like the tech industry in particular. I don't know. What are your What are your thoughts? I'm, on I'm it, not Jeff? sure that I have anything special to, to add about it. I mean, I was, as you were talking though, the name of the guy. Who is running that crypto scam? Bankman mm. Fried is that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, it seems to me, to explore the interconnections between what might be considered proper banking and you know scam banking mm-hmm. or scam investing, whatever. Right? Or then, if you think back, I don't know if you saw the movie that was made about the uh, the, the woman who made that fake blood testing machine. Yeah, what was that uh, uh, woman's just name? Got convicted. Well, you're talking about Theranos. Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes. Company, yeah, yeah, Theranos. I mean, that, and the lady's name was, I forget. Elizabeth Holmes. That's right. it, yeah. yeah. She, she had a second child as a way of trying to stay out of prison. <laughs> she, yeah, it's was, it was fascinating. She just, like, um, totally, uh, you know, invented herself to be this character so, like, the company would have some value just based on how she seemed as a person, mm. yeah. like, making herself like Steve Jobs and, again, having a child as a way to have sympathy and... Um, but this is like how Elon Musk acts too. Like the debate over whether Elon Musk is smart or not, it's not the point. The point is he's a good salesman. Oh yeah. So he can get on a call with a bunch of rich people and m- convince them that his ridiculous companies are good investments. And importantly, he can get on the phone also with politicians mm-hmm. and convince them, you know, get them to buy into it as well because we know government contracts are a big part of what he makes. But you've talked before about, uh, you know, M- Musk's takeover of Twitter being this kind of return of, like, slash and burn uh, corporate rating Gordon economics Gepo. of, the, of yeah. the 80s. And I, th- I think maybe, I don't know if there's a through line between the tech slump and like uh, the the way Musk is revealing that uh, the sort of paper tiger that is the tech economy, uh, making it like too obvious to ignore the way it, we have for the last ten years or something. That it's I don't know. Is it a coincidence that Silicon Valley Bank is the one that's collapsing first? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, you say first again. We're not entirely sure that this is going to be a contagion. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm I. We'll, we'll see what happens on Monday <laughs> or as the week progresses. Should we get in line after the podcast to get we, our cash out? We should probably get in line to get our cash out. If it takes down my local credit union here in Brooklyn, we yeah, know yeah. we're in trouble. But, yeah. So ahead. it's kind of, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, um, what, what was the, what if anything was the response of what might be considered a radical left to the last 2008 mm. collapse, which eventually was global in character, was not just contained here in the United States. And other than wailing about it and bemoaning it and kind of 
concern and how bad these guys really are and how what it reveals about the underlying you know kind of fictitious structure of capital i don't know that there was much of a political response that in retrospect uh i'm not sure exactly what's the nature of an of a of a good political response i don't have anything close to hand occupy was the the emergence of that response i think and the tea party the tea party and occupy yeah that's true so Occupy was 2010 or 2011? It was 2011. Yeah. So it was a little delayed, but right. I mean, the delay was initially, I think Obama being elected, like sort of like set things back a little bit. I mean, obviously it takes a minute for people to feel that kind of pain of the financial crisis. Right. You know, people weren't getting kicked out of their homes just just yet uh, at the scale that they would. Um, but then like the, you know, the decreased job opportunities and that sort of thing, the sort of discipline that was expected of the working class, I think... Yeah, the, the Tea Party and the Occupy expressed the way that felt. So is Occupy the first big political deed for you guys? It was uh, anti-globe for me. Anti-globe for me as well, yeah. Uh, like anti-RNC and, and uh, the anti-war movement, really. That's, yeah. that was the first 2003. Big, yeah, the first big protest I went to was against the war in Iraq. First big protest one, I went one to. One here in New York? Yeah, February 18th or whatever. First big well, one I went to was against Barnum and Bailey Circus, man. Hell yeah. Because they were abusing those elephants. I went down there and I protested for animal rights. I respect that. But then, I mean, it was, it was, it was what it was. And after that, of course, too, you had the anti-Iraq war. Right, so Iraq, and then things take a much more like sort of economic turn, obviously, after 2008, and I think there is this delayed reaction, and I think it's like there was a dead left sentiment in this country which Occupy tried to bring back together, tried to do it by creating a sort of horizontalism, a public square for people to come together and actually discuss like the grave crisis that we're in and the fact that if you remember Obama and, and, and all the people in power were talking about the green shoots and they were talking about recovery. Meanwhile, there's like 10 million people evicted from their homes and you had like a very shitty job situation and you had young people like col- young workers and young college students who were the ones that had the time and the energy to go out there. In terms of like a political response, it was more like Will somebody in government, will Barack Obama, will Rahm Emanuel do something right. for us like they did something for the banks? So it was like a political response, but it was refracted through like a plea to the government to do something better. So just trying to anticipate for a moment, let's say, just for argument's sake, that there is, that this Silicon Valley was the first of more to come and that there is you know, some significant financial crisis that develops or unfolds over the last month or whatever, okay? There may well be a a return of an Occupy or Squares-like moment. You know, it it may, for example, have more to do with the yellow vest in France than it did with the Arab Spring. I don't know exactly. But it would be interesting to think about what would be kind of something worth saying to that emerging political kind of scene yeah uh that would not be kind of you know let's demand that joe biden do something for us that's that's you know yeah i mean i think what you would see and i believe that uh economic crisis is probably coming it kind of has to we've been saying on this podcast for months 
for probably a year now. Yeah, we've been predicting it. <laughs> we haven't been predicting it per se. What what we've been like laying out the conditions that, that exist, such as we see it from a you know critique of political economy perspective. Right. And I've been looking around. I've been reading the financial press for a long time, and it seems like there's so many other shoes that need to drop right now. Mm. And yet we're in this weird spot where, like, the economy and especially tech is just sort of floating like above the conditions right now, right. and a very weird spot. And the I and mean, hiring and prices, like everything's is acting a little bit differently than yeah. like the most catastrophist. Uh, expectations which is why I've, i'm like very wary about about predicting but i think the question is a really good one that you pose john about like what sort of movements will arise and i think the guessing that the squares a squares type movement will return is a good guess because as we've seen since 2008 the sort of organic reaction to crisis has been this movement towards public spaces whether it's in greece whether it's in france whether it's in the uk the united states south america is that if that is indeed organic, that's not something that's just going to simply like disappear from like the pub, the consciousness of the working class that you go out, you know, mm-hmm. into the squares. You know what the other things that we've seen has been a like a let's call it a right petty bourgeois reaction. So this really rose up during COVID, and I think its most spectacular example was the truckers' quote unquote strike uh-huh. or convoy uh, in Canada. It seems to me that you're going to have a sort of, sort of bifurcated. Reaction: If we have another crisis, you're going to see like a right-wing populist turn that probably includes something that looks like the yellow vest and the truckers' convoy, maybe blockades and stuff like that. And then you'll probably see something that's like a younger, like millennial and Zoomer sort of squares type situation happening. And the question is like, how is there a way that those two things could come together in in a way? Is like, who do you address? Do you say to the truckers, you know, like you you're you're off the you're out of the program like you people are simply too gone politically to for us to interact with or do you go in there and do you start actually like pushing a line within that to try to move it in a different direction are they just petty bourgeois wreckers you know like trying to destroy regulation and unions many of them are are the kids who are out on the street simply doomed because of their ideology or their material position to simply do a repeat of 2010 2011 again i mean these are interesting questions i'm not sure i have the answer to them and certainly the big question as you said is how do you relate to that how do we relate to that as people of the communist left the um there's a guy I know who lives outside of Paris, Charles Reeve. He, he writes for the Brooklyn Rail about French and European stuff. And uh, he, we're in email touch, and he writes to me a few times recently, oh, we were out on the streets of Paris with another half million people today. Mm. All right. And uh, there, you know, and, and we've talked a little bit. I've talked a little bit with him about the kind of the very different style of Euro- European political. You know, mobilizations leave aside the yellow vest just for the moment, and American ones. I mean, there is you know kind of imagine what now what would there look like? What would it take to get a half a million people on the streets of the United States? Back in two thousand three, that time at the UN, I oh, was yeah. there as well. There probably were yeah. a half million people in that crowd, maybe more. I, mean, I think so. Yeah. The crowd mm-hmm. was all one the way of the from Fourteenth Street all the way up to the yeah, UN. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was there were so many people because remember the cops were keeping people not quite kettled, but they were forcing people into streets. Yeah. Uh, but that the when was the last time that there was something that looked like and felt like a working class response to whatever the of 
debacle of the moment was, and that's probably beyond our capacity. Well, the day without the immigrant was something like a uh, immigrant general strike in 2006. That's, that's and good, it's a good counter. It's confusing um, why that hasn't come back as like the you know the the way immigrants have been treated mm-hmm. and talked about has been so much worse. Um, maybe it's just because those those networks were a little bit secured by that protest. The economic conditions obviously were much different. Um, a couple of years after that, the bottom falls out. I would also add the women's march to that. Obviously, it was like totally steered towards the Democratic Party capture, but that was millions. Of- oh no, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I, mean, I know there was, I was trying to make a, a distinction between massive mobilizations, like in the wake of the Trump victory, mm-hmm. and whatever. Uh, or even the, the immigration one before then, and the something equivalent to the kind of with the, all this French activity is around the proposed reduction of the retire or the, the raising of the right. retirement age from sixty two to sixty four. Uh, now that's a long bygone era in the United States. Right, so what sixty six here now? <laughs> if you have any yeah, right to retire actually, at all, what's really fascinating is how many people seem perfectly content to work well into their seventies yeah. and just to keep on going and going and going, especially in academic faculties. When you mm. think about it, there's. Yeah. They never leave. <laughs> <laughs> David Harvey's still out there, right? <laughs> Shout out to David Harvey. Yeah, no, I think that there, there is this, there would have to be some sort of phase shift to get out of like, suppose what we could broadly call like the answer coalition mobilization. You know, answer coalition famously being like the Stalinist, post-Stalinist group that kind of spearheaded the great anti-war protests yeah. against the Iraq war and did a fine job of it, you know, as well for what it is. But, like, I guess the question is, can we imagine, hopefully at some point in time in the near future, breaking out of the activist bubble, you know, there being a mobilization that actually... Well, that was the George Floyd uprising. Yeah, that's true. Um, And to to an extent, like, all of these things had these spontaneous elements to it, but Women's March, uh, Day Without an Immigrant, um, you know, these Answer Coalition, Anti-War Movement, these were all uh, sort of front groups that were able to assemble and take the you know messaging um and aesthetics and like rules of the protest very well they're very good at it and nobody was really able to do that during and black lives matter is another example of that but during the uprising no group was really able to do that like certain abolitionists were able to put their message in there but they their group itself didn't really Mm. um get any there's no leadership you know even black lives matter like there, no one from black lives matter stood up to be a leader and i just think that's how it's going to be now because younger people just have no interest in being leaders or being led and so the uprising was as big as any of these other protests we're talking about it was just totally decentralized mm-hmm. and like impromptu and you could call a facebook event or just uh you know uh spread on instagram like a time and a place and 50,000 people show up there and just mm-hmm. do whatever they want. So but would you I – mean, I'd like to propose a, an important distinction between organize, organized leadership that calls into motion those massive crowds, okay, that it basically is responsible for doing it, as distinct from a coherent organizational political project that you know that does not aspire to leadership does not aspire to taking over the movement but does insist on the need for a certain kind of coherence and clarity in the political demands that emerge out of that movement uh that i mean a lot of what 
Jared and, and Jana's book, The States of Incarceration, is about is the lack of that kind of coherence and coordination in the wake of the George Floyd rebellion. That it's just right. and, and they have some if I read it correctly, some continuing hope that the abolitionist current may emerge in some fashion as the po- a possible vehicle for that, but I don't think it's there yet because of the the, the, way, the ways in which that, you know, kind of abolition is a, a fuzzy concept politically. Um, Going back to the yellow vests in France, I think France is very interesting because in France you have something probably as close in the entire world as we could call a relative autonomy of working class self-organization, which is to say like the post-communist and communist unions, which still have enough of a presence that they can be that cohering force on for a particular type of uh, workers activity, which is like one, two, three day uh, mass mobilizations and strikes against the state or sometimes against capital. Right. You have that on the one hand, which is an older sort of tradition and one that we look at in the United States like, wow, imagine having that. Imagine being able to call a general strike at all, you know, let alone pull a, an entire coalition of workers together in order to shut shit down. But then the yellow vest really complicates things because you have the sort of dynamic therein that Andy's talking about with this sort of decentralized, leaderless, sort of organic movement towards a particular sort of activity, which ends up being congregation and like traffic circles and squares on the one hand mobilization by way of blockades on the other hand and these two don't seem to have met one another at least not in a in a fully fleshed out sort of way so i wonder if maybe we can look at france as like a a possibility like a a moment where these two types of activity could marry one another and what that would potentially look like in the united states it's tough because we don't have an organ of class, organs of class power that are independent, certainly not of the Democratic Party and sure as fuck not uh, autonomous from the state itself. So I don't know, maybe maybe France, as usual, will lead the way towards the future. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that, and this is a, just an aside, that uh, it seems to me it's a, a real serious problem for us, for all of us, that the extent to which people here in the United States know so little about what goes on in other parts of the world, that uh, it's a, it kind of our, our collective knowledge is a headline knowledge. We, have, <laughs> we, we, we don't really have an appreciation for the, uh, I mean, look, for example, even the extent to which in, at least in European countries, and I'm sure there's elsewhere, um, let me give a good example. Someone just told me about a book written by a guy who's a professor at the University of Tokyo. It's called Marx and the Anthropocene. And yeah. he's arguing for, I just got it, so I haven't read it. Is that Saito? Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, you know, that book sold 500,000 copies in Japan. Damn. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a lot of books. That would be like... Is it a manga? <laughs> that would be like insurgent notes being in like you know next to the Wall Street Journal, yeah, you know, like in that. your local in your local bodega. It's but anyway. I mean, I think that for me, the interest was well, where who were those five hundred thousand people? You know, well, they have a huge communist party still in Japan. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe that you know, it's just, and we know so little about it that it's uh, and and our kind of our, our international. Some of you perhaps have heard a few years ago. I remember once I went to. Zach, what was Zach's last name? Galifianakis. Yeah, he lived in Bed-Stuy, and uh-huh. I went over to his house one night to give a talk about the first international being a good model for us to think about 
recovering and using again. I'm not sure how convincing I was, <laughs> but what I do kind of endlessly, and it was true in this most recent piece that I wrote about the war in Ukraine, talking a lot about the second international, it's really quite astonishing when you think about the the level of debates that occurred, however ineffectively at the end, in the Second International when you had conferences where kind of people like Lenin or Trotsky or Rosa Luxemburg or Franz Marin I mean, were there in person uh, having the argument, and it was not simply a matter of debate by long distance in mm. theoretical academic journals. Right. You know, that, uh, and that, so that, that kind of the issue for me or the challenge is to actually reimagine the possibility of internationalism, of, inter of genuine international connections. Now, we have the kinds of technologies that could make this relatively an easy proposition in comparison to what it was 100-plus years ago, mm. but I don't think that we figured out how to do it yet. Even so, translations, I don't know the last time you tried it. I mean, an increasing number of publications in Europe that are published initially in, in German or Ukrainian or Russian more or less now have instantaneous translation into English, mm -hmm. uh, and good English, mm -hmm. uh, not, not old Google Translate junk, but really, you know, all but fluent English. Well, just before we continue with this conversation, I just wanted to introduce our guests yeah, half an hour been, into the show. It's been a um, long road towards the introduction. We are talking to John Garvey uh, from Hardcrackers, Insurgent Notes, uh, Race Trader, Anything else I should uh, throw in there? That's a good enough start. Yeah. That's a good enough Thanks, start. Andy. Uh, on a personal note, I'd say that you and I, John, have been involved for 15 years or so now, maybe, on a series of different little projects. We've crossed paths a lot of were, times. Were you, I, did we first meet when we had that group that was meeting at the Commune? Yes, the Brooklyn Commune. Right, yeah. and that was in the midst of Occupy. That was an attempt to try to organize a different current, you know, and, yeah. and the folks from <coughs> excuse me from internationalist perspectives. I think maybe have taken the lead in that, uh, and you know, I I thought it had some promise, but yeah, alas, we had some meetings also at the Brecht Forum. Rest in peace. I remember that was more of a study group. I think Lauren Goldner maybe threw together a sort of like Marx yeah. reading group thing that, that we sense. did too. Yeah. But it's good to see you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, it I mean, I think that there were a few people who I met. I mean, Jared, I must have met around that time. Yeah. Um, and I guess that was the, the folks up in the Bronx. They take oh, back the Bronx. Yeah. And, Shaman and... And uh, that, that yeah. emerged out of unity and struggle or that became, you know, I forget which way it was. Uh, but um, Well, the gang's back together again. Certainly almost 15 years ago. Certainly was, but we're still here. We're still doing it. And you're on the Antifada. It's great to have you on. Man. Thank you. Thanks. And we, we've been talking a lot about the, the war in Ukraine over the last year, of course. I think it's probably the topic we discuss the most. And... Um, we are often sort of dancing around the question of like, uh, defeatism, you know, right. this, we, this is what we talked about with Aaron from platypus. We talked about it, uh, with Ross. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the best things I've read about it is, is your article, John, against the Russian invasion of Ukraine for the successful resistance of the Ukrainian people, uh, published in, uh, your special issue of insurgent notes about this, this question. So, um. I know, would you would you want to summarize the article to some extent? Sure, but let me before we do that, let me give a, a kind of a shout out to the two of you. <clears throat> the 
I, I heard Ross's appearance you know, when he did that, however, three months ago, whenever, mm. okay? And uh, soon thereafter, okay, we got, uh, I got an email message from this group in Slovakia called Carmina, mm. who I promise you I didn't know anybody in Slovakia, okay? <laughs> and this guy is named Jura. Jura is fluent and proficient in English, and he had listened to your podcast, oh. so he actually knew about what was going on you know, here in the States because of your podcast. Oh, cool. Which is, that actually feels really good. Yeah. I'm kind of uh, touched by that. Well, ahoy say. to you, Jura. <laughs> yes. Shout out to Jura. Thanks. So, Shout out. anyway, let me just try to, because not quite summarize it, but to, to treat some of the main topics. The, uh, I had been uh, researching and trying to understand what happened in Europe on the occasion of the infamous betrayal of 1914 when the social... Socialist parties who had more or less pledged they would go to their graves opposing an imperialist war rather quickly and almost unanimously betrayed that principle, mm-hmm. uh, including the German Social Democratic Party, which was by all accounts the the kind of the leading force in the world socialist movement. Even as late as 1913, Lenin was raving about the organization of the German party. Uh, and uh, there was probably... Uh, there was some resentment about the kind of the way in which the German party kind of dominated things, but no one challenged its political perspective. It was the true predecessor to Marx and Engels. There's like a direct line between Marx and then Engels and then Bebel and Kautsky. There was. was. And so anyway, uh, in the course of doing that, I, uh, I I tried to understand the emergence of an anti-war opposition from within the social Democrat party in various places, including Russia with Lenin and Trotsky and others, Germany with uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and others, and and the debates that they had about how to kind of move forward. But in the midst of that, though, kind of Lenin's position calling for the defeat of revolutionary defeatism that every proletarian, every socialist must wish for and must fight for the defeat of his own country, you know, mutual self-assured defeat, uh, became in some ways the kind of the, the sort of the, the flagpole of the far left stance on these matters. Mm-hmm. And in the course of doing that work, I came across this long essay by Hal Draper, a guy who was really quite remarkable, probably is most well known for a book, uh, a series of books on uh, Karl Marx's theory of revolution. Mm-hmm. It was, I guess, published by Monthly Review Press a million years ago, but also had been politically active in Berkeley and had formed a group called the Inter- Independent Socialist Club, which then became the International Socialists, you know, and yeah. then, I guess, morphed into the ISO and, in recent memory. And also the um, Teamsters for a Democratic Union come directly out of Draperism as well. Yes. All right. So anyway, he had this, in 1953 essay, arguing basically that revolutionary defeatism was simply not a real political position. It was just an amalgam of stuff, right? And that it mostly was intended to serve Lenin as a way of kind of putting himself in the most extreme position and saying, if you really want to be against this barbarous war, be with me, because mm-hmm. I'm the one who's shouting the loudest, I'm the one who's saying the most daring, outrageous things, and that's where you all should be. And I don't think that it during the, the actual war, it ever became a dominant political slogan. Uh, he says at one point uh, that Trotsky disagreed with it, 
And Luxembourg probably never heard about it because she mm. was in prison most <laughs> of that time. And so it kind of, and he relatively quickly, once the October Revolution had occurred or the February Revolution, and Lenin was back in Russia for the first time in a long time. Uh, remember, he most of that posturing he did while he was in Switzerland. Mm. <laughs> you know, that it was no chance that it was going to matter very much. Right. But once he got back home, it really mattered. And he relatively quickly switched his position to what he referred to as revolutionary defensism, mm. even before October, between mm -hmm. February and October. Well, what kind of slogan is that, that you kind of dispense with it <clears throat> six months into you know, a real revolutionary ferment? <clears throat> So anyway, when the, Iraq, when the Ukraine war broke out and the, the revolutionary defeatism slogan became one of the hallmarks of what might be considered the far left political sensibility, not just here in the United States, but perhaps even more so in Europe, mm. I wanted to kind of say, wait, 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 that's not, you know, it's, it's not what it looks like. It's not, it just is, uh, it, it's, it's not a coherent political position. And the, uh, the Carmina folks, who I mentioned a few minutes ago in Slovakia, say in their response to my article is that revolutionary defeatism is basically a, 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 project, a political stance which enables people to stand by and do nothing mm -hmm. and feel like they've done enough, mm -hmm. right? And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Now, I, the people who, who advocate revolutionary defeatism and, and Ross, who did a really great job in pulling together that special issue for Insurgent Notes, we worked together on it, but he did a lot of the work. In his introduction, he kind of puts himself that he's still in that camp. So mm. this is not someone to dispense with or to dismiss or anything like that. And there are a lot of people like that. So I tried really hard to not to not engage in trashing, to not engage in hyperbole, to try to have a measured argument. What difference You're a little made? nasty to Lenin. Well, a little that, bit. That, uh, that's uh, fine to be nasty to Lenin as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I actually think that one of the problems we have beyond this is that people from are way too considerate of Lenin. Right, I right. Mean, uh, and that or, but, <coughs> I mean, in a way, you're being more considerate of Lenin because you're saying, like, Lenin under, you know, Lenin knew what needed to be done at a certain moment and just totally leaned into it. So you describe revolutionary defeatism, or maybe you're just paraphrasing Draper, oh, but like revolutionary defeatism was just kind of like uh, his, that was what he believed the position should be for a period of time. And then when conditions change and he's in a different location, a different struggle, well, he's got a different kind but, of initiative. But let's be honest about what the stakes are. And I think you lay this out in your article. It's that what you argue and Draper argues was a temporary and I wouldn't say rhetorical, but a very political position at a very specific moment in, in world history, then becomes a sort of revolutionary watchword that is taken uh, uncritically now. Because Lenin, of course, uh, lives and fights and dies. But then Leninism, of course, arises in his wake. And Leninism, uh, for better or for worse, and I would argue for worse, is now sort of the default position when one calls oneself you know, a communist, uh, in, the, in the Western world at least. And so... People tend not to interrogate, A, the context, and B, what the actual, like, 100 years later, what the actual real-world consequences of this are, and this is what you're trying to do. Yeah, right? I, mean, I think that's right. I mean, and, and Draper, I mean, Draper is an admirer of Lenin. Draper is not, a, you know, a left critic of Lenin at all, but he, he does, and at one point, he, he kind of, he paints a description of how Lenin worked politically. And one of the ways he describes, for example, in the battle for organization inside Russia for you know, the need for a, a centralized party, 
I mean, <laughs> kind of Lenin didn't kind of sit down, okay, casually and say, you know, friends, I think we need to have something that's a bit more centralized than we have, okay? Mm. And maybe we could consider that, all right? That's not what Lenin did. Mm -hmm. What Lenin started to say was, if you're not in favor of centralization, you might as well be on the side of the czar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right from the get-go, he goes for the jugular. He right. kind mm -hmm. of, he just is, he, it was his only, the only way he knew how to fight politically. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, and I think that ultimately, you know, it was not an especially helpful mo mode of discourse for what became of the Russian Revolution. I mean, I recently have been reading a couple of odd pieces about Julius Martov, the kind of mm. well-known Menshevik, and you can imagine a Menshevik at that point in 1917 was functionally equivalent to a traitor to the revolutionary cause. Martov was no traitor, and he actually wrote a book about world Bolshevism, and as I understand it, I've just gotten into a little bit, he kind of argues for a political sensibility that militarized every political debate, mm. that there was a kind of an element that, you know, that these are the way we win these battles is by fighting like we're in a war. Mm. Uh, and that's not especially helpful. That explains, I think, some of what went terribly wrong inside Russia so, and then the Soviet Union. So there's a tendency both within like the, the minority and the majority within Russian social democracy towards this sort of war footing when it comes to politics. Are you arguing that that's, that exists within the like socialist moving into communist movement in the early 20th century in general, or is that a Russian phenomenon? I think that that's a Russian phenomenon. I mean, I believe it's the case somewhere that uh, C.L.R. James, in describing Lenin's, you know, the kind of Lenin's last few years of his thinking about what was going on and his concerns, whatever. remember this is when he was very sick and whatever, okay, and specifically around the emergence of Stalin as mm -hmm. the likely dominant force. And one of the things that, uh, that Lenin said about what had happened in Russia in terms of its domination of the worldwide movement, he said it was too Russian. Mm. It became too Russian. Now, that, it didn't just become too Russian. Lenin had a lot to do with it becoming too <laughs> Russian. But, but uh, even he recognized the fruits of what had been created. It was, yeah. kind of, it was not uh, a helpful, productive way for serious people to argue about very serious things with each other and make decisions, mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. or wrong decisions. That I mean, just, I mean, I think we could benefit from going back to those meetings that Sean talked about before in the context of Occupy. One of the things that I, I spent a lot of time talking about was my previous experience as a cab driver being part of this group for eight years called the Taxi Rank and File Coalition and how we had managed without a lot of previous sophisticated political experience, nonetheless to figure out how to conduct our affairs and our debates about a lot of very serious issues. I mean, things like, for example, okay, at one point we had a kind of, we formally adopted a position that we wanted the NLF to win the war in Vietnam. Mm. And then we had a song, we sang about it, okay, how we were going to help the NLF, have helped the people take Saigon. Um, and now there are a lot of people who disagree with that in the group. But what we were able to do is to kind of conduct our debates in such a way that even when people lost, on serious issues, they didn't walk away mm -hmm. and they didn't break the group. Mm -hmm. But did they have to <coughs> sing the song? 
No, they probably didn't have to sing. They probably didn't sing the song anyway. <laughs> uh, certainly, I but didn't you, sing all the songs. <laughs> but you succeeded, though. The NLF yeah. did take Saigon. Yeah, so they, yeah. There's probably a statue to you. In the well, Saigon. I don't know about that. No, the on John the other Garvey hand, think Square about you know, well, what, what did we win? You know, when, yeah. when, when we've managed to integrate Vietnam into the world economy. Oh, uh, <laughs> sure. Well, and and this is like the the great pushback that you would have gotten, and you still get today about. Uh, critiques of Bolshevism, critiques of Leninism, is that whatever happened, whatever like deformed tendencies of political practice arose after 1917, at least they won. You know, and that's something that you'll... So, like, maybe it's good for a little taxi driver's rank-and-file alliance to have some sort of political democracy within their, you know, relatively decentralized movement. But in order to actually confront capital and its state, you need a strong Leninist vanguard to smash. You need... Uh, what? Yeah, so, like, democratic centralism, while maybe abhorrent in, like, you know, broader democratic terms, is the way that you conquer power. Now, after 1991... You know, you kind of have to question that. But it still is, with Leninism still being this default on the, on the communist left, uh, you know, democratic centralism, too, is argued as a way that you break through, you know, from being a smaller movement into a, into a bigger but it's one. It's kind of interesting, Sean, to connect that to, to the war question. There's a big national demonstration, or maybe several de- national demonstrations. There's one in Washington and probably one in San Francisco, I guess. I think it's next Saturday, the 18th, that's called by one of these enormous coalitions of maybe 60, 70, 100 different organizations. It is probably, from what I can figure out, initiated by and effectively controlled by either the Workers' World Party Mm. and Answer Acting Alone or in concert with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, mm. which is a, a split, and I don't post-Stalinist. I, I don't uh, understand group. the split, but I believe that's right. And then an array of other groups like Code Pink and whatever. The reason why I'm mentioning that is not all of the groups in the coalition fit what I'm about to say, but the leadership does, and they are still working off of a hundred plus years, okay, of what they imagine to be the kind of the historical legacy. Of, both, of the Bolshevik victory. They mm-hmm. still have, and that's why, for example, there's a group here in Brooklyn called Brooklyn for Peace, which has four or 5,000 members, and they have a kind of an internal split where there are maybe even a majority of the members are effectively in favor of, you know, the, of the forcing the Ukrainians to kind of lay down their arms and accommodating a good part of the Russian demands, okay? Mm. So in other words, that peace will come at the price of the chopping up of Ukraine. Uh, And that's because they still have some lingering affection for this thing that Mm. has no resemblance to whatever I might feel critical about 1917 in Russia. <laughs> yeah, that and just vulgar anti-imperialism, right? Yeah, it is. Like, it's if exactly you're the en- enemy of the United States, you're probably better it's than a, the United the States. The problem with, the problem is, though, is that, like, for whether we like it or not, the situation is such that, like, that is the most realistic way to have peace right now. This war, this grinding war of attrition, these meat grinder type set piece battles like um, Bakhmut that are happening at this very moment are chewing up thousands upon thousands of lives. And it doesn't seem as though what you would argue for, what we would argue for, which is the working class overthrowing their various leaders, whether it's Putin or Zelensky, um, in, in 
without that possibility in the air, the best you could hope for would be a negotiated peace, one that, you know, would give up Crimea, would give up uh, parts of uh, the Donbass, at least, maybe the entire thing. And so if you're going from a purely peace perspective, you know, this is rational. But we're not, I don't think any of us here are pacifists per se. You know, we understand pacifism as like a tool or an instrument that like a workers' movement could use in order to, to push its program and push its power. But from a purely like anti-war perspective, sure, yeah, negotiate with Putin, stop the war, stop the bloodshed, stop the bombing. Right, I understand that. But I, as I mentioned in the article, one of the things that I think could result from that, you know, kind of pragmatic, mm. understandable kind of you know, kind of reality, is a, the kind of the case of Palestine. Mm. That 1947-48, okay, there eventually was a certain kind of peace that was, you know. Establish, we you know where from the partition of Israel and the the rest of the territory, and here we are in 1923, and the predicament of the Palestinians is arguably worse than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that peace was achieved in 1948, but at what terrible price? That's, uh, yeah. In uh, so that it's I mean, and the Palestinian example is a really interesting one because you have. Not just the Palestinian example, but since 1991, you have the example of Ossetia in Georgia. You have the example of Transnistria in Moldavia. You have the sort of frozen conflict, which is like Central Asia at this point in time. And so it seems as though a sort of political reckoning in Israel, in Palestine, that political reckoning has been 70 years in the making or potentially coming pretty soon with like the elimination of the Palestinian people as an ongoing political unit. Um, but all across the area that this war is happening in right now, you have a series of frozen conflicts. You know, so indeed, the pragmatic solution to this only potentially pushes a future, like real resolution of this problem into the future. And one that isn't, at, uh, at this moment in time, going to be a good one for anybody in that region, certainly not the working right. class. Well, I mean, like, what is your pragmatism based in? Because, like, the United States is acting very pragmatically by trying to prolong the war as long as possible. So Russia just wears itself out. Yeah. and these frozen conflicts stop being such an issue because you don't have the Russian paratroopers to, to drop in whenever there's a, a uprising, whether it's a color revolution or not. Yeah. Russia just ceases to be the threat that it was uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, that's, I think that's what the U S state department's trying to do at the expense of every Ukrainian basically yeah, yeah. who's still there. So that's pragmatic for U S interests. And I think if you're Ukrainian, it, there's a certain pragmatism to fighting, fighting for even for Crimea, you know, yeah. because they if Russia continues to have a chunk of your country and claim it, they'll continue to, to claim more and more of it. And remember, this war didn't begin by just trying to take Donetsk. It began by trying to take Kiev. Yeah. And so it's going to be hard for anything to be negotiated when the war began that way. But things things are more complicated and deeper than that too because when they tried to quote unquote take Kiev it was all it was reflective of deep fissures within Ukrainian society itself I'm sorry well, Kiev Kiev sorry we we call it Kiev now deep fissures within and not just linguistic uh fissures within Ukrainian society you know it, it's not it wasn't just a color revolution and it wasn't just an attempt by Putin to like bring it in into their orbit 
Uh, it wasn't just neo-Nazis and it wasn't just liberals, right? It was, in fact, like a reflection of this 30-year or at that point 25-year split, like break within the entire post-Soviet order about what orientation towards... Would you have an Eastern orientation towards capital in its like authoritarian and political form or would you have a western orientation towards capital in its liberal you know nice free speech form and so if we look at this only geopolitically then we only come to sort of geopolitical conclusions pragmatic ones like end the war now let putin have the donbass and move on but I like to think that the three of us and also the listeners out there too don't think of this purely in geopolitical terms that is a big part mm-hmm. of it, but also in class terms, in terms of like what's happening on the ground and, how, and in what ways is this revolutionizing Ukrainian and Russian society, hell, Polish society and other societies in the region. In what sense can the working class actually arise potentially as another pole of attraction towards some sort of political solution that doesn't simply end in a geopolitical way, doesn't simply end in another frozen con- uh, conflict, but instead potentially arises as a class movement? You know, where, where, however things shake out. So one of the other articles in the Insurgent Notes issues was written by a guy named Bob Myers, who uh, lives in Manchester in England. And in the early 90s, when the Balkan Wars were roaring along, he was responsible for helping to organize a, a workers' aid project, which included, you know, esta- you know, conducting truck convoys to bring in supplies all the way across Europe to, down to the Balkans, okay, to deliver it to the... To the people there, and you know, he kind of, and he, his article is very personal. It's about just telling the story of what he did and what he learned, and what it might be relevant to this. And I think that he's echoing, or, or in advance, he's anticipated some of what you just said, Sean, which is that the sometimes the the form that workers' struggles take is not what you think it should. Mm, and that mm. you know, kind of sometimes self-organizing yourself into a militia is something approximately like self-activity or self-organization in a workplace. And therefore, it's, I don't think that he's saying that it's like every time that you know, workers do something, they get a green light. But that it's really important and worthwhile to pay attention to what they do. He's a, Bob is somehow, he's either a member of the angry workers or is very close to them. That, I've only seen him on Zoom calls, so... Uh, well, you know, what you're saying, Sean, I, what kind of reminds me of, of this question that I think is sort of central to these debates within the Second International and that, that you summarize in the article is the question of, is it better to live under liberal democracy than authoritarianism, some sort of dictatorship? And I think that's part of the question of, of, of Ukraine is, okay, so yeah, they, they're, there's a, a politics there that begins with Maidan that's more Western-oriented, more NATO, EU-oriented, whatever. But it, it's also just oriented towards parliament, parliamentary democracy yeah. because if you look at the direction Russian, Russia's gone over the last 20 years, it's increasingly conservative uh, authoritarianism under Putin. And there are people to Putin's right, but Putin's very far right. So it's not like Ukraine is a left wing country by any means, but they did democratically elect this this like liberal president and they're fighting a war to preserve that liberal democracy. And it's always been an important question within the history of communism. Do you fight for liberal democracy under some circumstances? Yeah, I mean, that's an essential question. I mean. I, I, I think to myself about um, what it means post-war, no matter what the settlement is, 
for Ukraine to be integrated into, you know, Western capital and what that looks like and whether that creates conditions more conducive to the Ukrainian working class becoming a pole of, of political activity. And I don't know, I keep getting, I keep getting drawn back to this fascinating article that came out in the New York times, uh, some months ago. I haven't ever talked about it, but it really stuck with me and it was about the legacy of the, the Soviet union and the way in which, Despite all the odds, uh, Ukraine managed to keep this very robust state-centric railroad um, you know, complex together, which has been essential to the war effort and essential to employment in an economy that has really declined spectacularly over the last 30 years. And it was this sort of like hagiography of all these rail workers and all of their self-activity and self-organization you know, and their, their union drive, their working class drive in order to help out in this war effort. And it's this you know, kind of puff piece about the Ukrainian... If you look at what the plans are for post this war, coming from the European Union, coming from the United States, it's, of course, for the thing that the Ukrainian working class has resisted for the last 20, 30 years or so, which is the privatization and the the increase of productivity and efficiency on this very railroad service that has been the lifeblood of the working class trying to, you know, often unpaid and without any hours, trying to get war materials to the front, trying to get injured people and evacuating people away from the front, trying to get all the sorts of things necessary to prosecute this war. The imposition, or let's not call it the imposition, the... Um, absorption of Ukraine into the Western liberal capitalism will, in a in a real sense, eliminate the entire like patrimony of these people that they fought to, for for so long. Eliminate, as it already has, the left from that country, as we've seen with the banning of various communist parties, with the decommunization campaigns uh, that have happened in Ukraine over the last year or so. It's a real open question to me whether the conditions will be better for the working class to fight, to, to regain some sort of initiative after this war, if it is part of the European Union, versus whether you know it's, it goes the other way. I, it's an open question to me. What do, what do you think, John? I don't know. Well, I think it's... I think you're. I, I wish I had read that railroad story. That's, I should have I sent it really to you. Really bad about missing that. <laughs> but never, in, never in that article is it mentioned what the fruits of this, uh, you know, this integration into the West is going to be, which you know because they already have the plans out there. Is the elimination of this? Yeah, that could very well happen. But I, I think that we, for the moment, right, we have to. Let's take a, a kind of a sober look at what goes on inside Russia today, yeah. as I mentioned in the article, there's an extraordinary level of opposition to this war. I mean, it's not as much as it once was. It's not as much as we might wish for, but still in all, under extraordinarily repressive conditions, a lot of people are doing a lot of things, all right? And also there's passive resistance as well. It's probably certainly true. But the, the circumstances under which they labor are more extreme than it's possible to imagine might come to prevail in Ukraine were it to survive this war and to make a more formal set of connections to the West, political, military, and economic, okay? Because the situation in Russia is so extreme across so many different dimensions of, of people's lives, okay? Whether it's their sexual lives, their, mm. their cultural lives, their, to the extent that they have political lives at all, th- those lives you know, are only lived at the expense of possibly going to jail Mm. or to prison. Um, Not for everyone, not all the time, but certainly enough that makes everyone pretty scared. And uh, now look, you know, kind of repressive societies, you know, 
come to their end sometimes, okay, as we're witnessing in Iran. Maybe, mm. you know, who knows for sure, but you know, they don't last forever, even though they seem to. Uh, but if I had to, I think you're right to emphasize the extent to which it will be bad or worse for the Ukrainians. That's an open question. Yeah. Whether it's going to be worse than the alternative of being subordinated to Russia, I think probably not. Mm. It's a, that, I think, is not quite an open question. Well, there's, I mean, I, I agree. And I, I think that, like, there's different ways in which we can view this and the, the way that I've tried to get around, like, just like the, uh, I don't know, the, the absolute horrors that are happening over there is that there is, like, a, a view, a humanitarian vision of things. There's, like, a liberal and democratic vision. There's, like, a, yeah, like a deeply humanistic and moral vision of, of what things should look like over there. But then there's also, like, the revolutionary. There's, like, the the hard-headed vision of, like, what could possibly come out of this stuff. And, you know, sometimes those two things don't meet up with one another. Should everybody live under the liberal democratic capitalism like we have in the United States and in Western Europe? Should everybody enjoy that? Certainly more so than people living in the capitalist periphery or living under authoritarian regimes. That, I, I just take that for granted. Is there the possibility that, you know, is revolutionary change of this society and this world more or less possible if that's the case? Open question again. Because we know that within the American sphere, within the European Union, within the sort of NATO Western European capitalists, things are not as repressive in in such a very, um, you know, pronounced way such as it is in Putin's Russia. But yet still, there is a, a severe anti-communist repression. There is a severe repression of working-class self-activity um, that also has a, an element of, if not compulsion, then certainly like um, various different informal structures to make sure that the kind of world that we want to live in does not happen. And, and another and argument it's called liberal democracy. You, uh, you put forward in the article is that there, there is this revolutionary or this coordination of different revolutionary groups in the region and... Uh, in Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, perhaps elsewhere. And basically, there are these small anarchist or communist groups who are um, taking up arms or sabotaging rail lines in Russia and Belarus. And I've heard some people say that these are just like Ukrainian secret service operations or CIA operations, and they claim to be revolutionaries as a way of covering their tracks or making it seem like there's resistance, so I don't. I don't really know what's going on, but there there are uh, are revolutionaries, and by and large, they are working against Russia. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm sure there are you know efforts by the various you know intelligence agencies to you know to kind of wreak havoc inside these groups. I think it's likely, though, given the extent to which there are positive accounts of what they've managed to do in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus, okay, that, you know, that that's a, a relatively minor dimension of it, that I think these are genuine, these are real, uh, that, I mean, the anarchists who have publicly identified themselves with joining militias and going to the defense of the Ukrainian nation have subjected themselves to pretty severe criticism from anarchists and other circles mm-hmm. that are upholding a more traditional anti-war position, mm-hmm. and this is not something that people do lightly, uh, and I assume that some of the individuals involved are, have named that people know who they are and their their organizations have histories. I don't know very much about them, uh, but the uh, um, I think that there is there's clearly. I don't think there is 
there is anti-war sentiment in Ukraine. There certainly probably are people who are sick of the war, people who just can't imagine another day under war conditions, and would do almost anything to get out from underneath the war. I have no doubt about that at all. On the other hand, I don't think there's any kind of evidence that I've seen of sabotage of the Ukrainian war operation. Uh, that there, I mean, actually, there was one really troubling thing that happened a few weeks ago where the Ukrainian government established a much harsher code of military conduct to try to govern things like people being absent without leave and things of that sort. And that was a very worrisome uh, kind of development. That There is a newspaper, which is an online newspaper called Kiev Independent, mm. and they are noteworthy uh, for publishing articles that are consistently critical of the Ukrainian government, okay? For example, that there was some evidence that this international legion, or foreign legion, not the Russian one, but Uh the more general one, was riddled by corruption and various kind of autocratic practices, and they blew it up. They Mm. kind of put it on the front page. And then they even went so far as to publish an an editorial about why we did that in the first place. Mm. Uh, And basically they said, we are not a tool of the Ukrainian government. Uh, We... We're supporters of the war and whatever, but that's so. Which is, you make a distinction between fighting for Ukraine and fighting for the state. For the state. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, I think that, as I mentioned in the article, I very unexpectedly came across these, you know, uh, articles by Rosa Luxemburg, who, as I said, was probably more noted for her consistent anti-war position. Uh, than anyone else in the kind of in the revolutionary tradition and opposed to nationalism, you know, as part of that. And lo and behold, she kind of has these very thoughtful and favorable things to talk about, to say about the nationalist sensibility amongst working people, <coughs> that they're... <coughs> that it's amongst the most powerful of the sentiments that workers instinctively express and that it can't be just dismissed, it can't be just ignored, and instead it needs to be embraced with a kind of an approach to the to the national cause that differentiates it from what she describes as the nationalism of the landowners and the corporate, you know, kind of controllers. Uh, so I think that that's what I was trying to get at, that they're based on everything that I know that there seems to be some genuine feeling I mean, on the part of the Ukrainians that this is what they want to do. Mm-hmm. This is they, they want to get this boot off of their necks, and they want to, and they want to you know, go about building or rebuilding a country which is going to be a devastated landscape. But then on the other end, couldn't you say the same thing about Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea? Like the workers there want to see themselves as Russian and want to be Russian. Actually, that, I think, is a kind of a mixed issue. I mean, that's kind of the... Even in those eastern provinces, okay, I think it's somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the people are not Russian. They're Ukrainians, mm. right? And, and there needs to be a distinction made between speaking Russian and being Russian, okay? The, you know, a large part of the Ukrainian population speaks Russian as a first language. We wrote a little piece in Hard Crackers by a young man named Max Bondarenko who interviewed Ukrainians here, mostly in Brooklyn, soon after the war broke out about what they thought about what was going on. And unfortunately, I haven't been in touch with him recently, but he comes from a family that he describes as Ukrainian who left Ukraine 15 or so years ago. He's... 20-something or whatever, okay? But Russian is their language at home. Uh, so there's the kind of the, kind of the, the correlation or, the, or sort of the, the matching of language and nationality is not a one-to-one thing. 
Uh, and my guess is that in Ukraine, the vast majority of the population probably is effectively bilingual. You know, they may, they, it may well be that some people are much more proficient in one language than the other. But, you know, you think about, you know, if you've been to Germany, you know, I've only been there once. I mean, people in Germany, I, I don't think I met anyone who wasn't fluent in English mm. when I was in Germany. Okay, but... Uh, do you think there is political will in, I mean, especially in Crimea, that just is totally rejects the concept of the Ukrainian identity? No, I, 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 I well, I, would, I take that back. It could well be that in Crimea. I mean, I kind of that you know, there's a Crimea was historically the, the significant population group in Crimea was the Tatars, Tatars who yeah. got they they, they met a, a bad fate. For, from everybody, I guess, but especially from the Russians. So, I mean, I, I think it's in the one of the things that I think this is what the folks from Slovakia argue is that those three regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea, there should be some relatively peaceful democratic process for them to make their way, for them to decide what it is they want to do once the kind of the dust has settled, not mm-hmm. under wartime conditions, not under kind of the, the, the barrel of a gun, but, right. you know, after you see what's left, uh, that, uh, and that autonomy is, uh, I mean, look, it's a, a play, Slovenia is, you know, a, a country that was one of the results, I guess, of the breakup of Yugoslavia. It's like this, it's, it's not even an island in Europe, mm-hmm. you know. So small nations can exist. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, kind of unlike what was used to be a certain kind of left-wing common sense that only only the bigger and the better, you know, matter. That's you know. Well, and, the 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 common sense, like bourgeois notion of nationalism of the nineteenth century and the early twentieth century, is that you know each nationality deserves their homeland, except that whatever nation we form out of various different wars or whatever should be like an economically expansive enough one that you can create, create a national economy. You know, what we're seeing right now with the nationalism of Eastern Europe is a fruit of Soviet nationality policy of like the 1920s, essentially 1920s and 1930s. One that said various particular borders, certainly borders and peoples were moved around a lot after the second world war two as well. Borders set and nationality set within a federation that assumed that they would be part of a cohesive uh, u- unit called the USSR. That this within this federated structure, albeit dominated from Moscow, right? Each peoples would have their own expression. When 1991 comes and the breakup and the you know uh, of the USSR happens, you then have an open question about what way what way will these nationalities express themselves? Which is again why I think it's as it's as important to view this as a civil war within post-Soviet state uh, space as it is to understand this as like a purely geopolitical thing between the West and the East. And I think one, you know, I think one of the the, the things that we're, we've left untalked about is the ease with which a lot of people on the, the far left uh, have accommodated themselves to Putinism, uh, have understood Putinism, in fact, to be a continuation of the Soviet project in some weird way, pointing to the fact that the Communist Party in um, in uh, in the in Russia has an alliance essentially with Putin's party, which is what Russia first or Russia. I think it's United Russia. United Russia. That's exactly it. Yeah, and so they use that as a fig leaf in order to say that like this process that Putinism is is giving forth this sort of political capitalism, this authoritarian capitalism, this return to like great Russian chauvinism and having its own sort of political sphere. There's a one to one correlation between that and what. 
Russia's doing in Ukraine now and the rise of a new sort of, you know, communist movement or a new USSR. USSR part, uh, point two, as we've been told. So actually, can I just shift the discussion just a little bit and ask you both of you what you think? Going back to what I said a few minutes ago about this big national demonstration that's going to happen, you know, demanding peace, demanding a ceasefire next weekend. The That is you know, kind of the project of uh, what, you know, what I've referred to in other contexts is ordinary leftism, okay? Mm. It, it goes from people who are in DSA, probably some people even who are in the Democratic Party for all practical purposes, to, you know, across to the left to include people like the Workers' World Party and some possibly some other Maoist legacies, I don't know exactly, all right? And that is still the dominant organized left in this country. To the extent that there's a left, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know? and it seems to me one of our concerns from the far left is how, what should we be thinking about doing to grow the coherence and the size of our left mm. in comparison to almost anything, but I mean, you know, kind of what, uh, and, and not so much to take positions that are you know, only the product of a kind of a PR strategy, what's going to kind of attract attention and you know, influence people and win friends, but how can we articulate a far left politics that's somewhat adequate to, you know, the moment? You know, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about when I was thinking about what I might say is, you know, how fragmented the far left tends to be in this country and probably in other places as well. I don't know if either of you ever had occasion to read Zero Work. Zero Work was a publication by the American autonomist, people mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, Harry Cleaver, Bob Peter Lombard, uh, S- Sylvia uh, Federici, George Confensis, you know, those folks, okay? Yeah. And the zero work was their political strategy, okay? That we demand no work. We demand zero work and stuff like that. And Cleaver wrote a really good book about reading Marx called Reading, reading Capital reading Politically. Capital Politically. Right, yeah. I read that <clears throat> back in the day. So he... Some time ago, after Zero Work was long a dead project, okay, wrote a history, a very detailed history of how the journal had, it's online somewhere, I don't have the link immediately, what the political issues were that emerged, who was in, who was out, whatever, okay? And then at one point, he kind of takes stock, and one of the things he's curious about is how, and and to some extent, the the Zero Work folks were CLR James people, Mm. Johnson Forrest, tendency, you know, legacies, uh, and he poses the question, how come we never really tried to establish direct links with the council communists, mm. the people like Paul Maddock, the people like, you know, who had been responsible for publishing Root and Branch back in the early 1970s? And as I recall, he didn't really have a good answer. Mm. Now, clearly, if you come from a, a CLR Jamesian tradition, influenced by Italian autonomism, okay, or a workerism, whatever, you have some distinctive kind of political kind of convictions. Mm. On the other hand, if you come from a council communist tradition, which goes back to the time of the First World War and draws its inspiration from people like Panikok and Goethe uh, and things like that, you have your other different set of political sensibilities. But it's not exactly as if they're at, they're hostile to each other. Right. They're, yeah. they're really there's a lot to talk about, and a lot it seems to me that's capable of common action and common uh, kind of effort. 
and but we're plagued by the absence of that. And that same thing is true. We don't know what the effort would even be. The effort so saying? far, well, we mean, know I, what I, works, and it's podcasting. Well, I okay. Think that it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, zero it, work has won. Initially, <laughs> I would simply be bringing people together to talk. Now, I have a cautionary tale about that. There's another group that's part of that, and that's the international Marxist. I don't know if you've ever come. If you've ever come across them. Uh, they actually, the IMT? No, no, the no. IMHO. Oh, no. They that's split. a great name. In my I humble am, opinion. I no, 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 that's it. This is, this is the International Marxist Humanist Organization. Oh, and there's okay. another yes, one yes. called the Marxist Humanist Initiative. There yes, is split. Yeah. Okay. But the first one is much more consequential and significant. It's two leading members are Kevin Anderson, who right. I've known for a long, long time, and Peter Yudis, who I know less well. And then they, Andrew Kleiman split from them? Is that Kleiman, they both split from news and letters oh, okay. uh, and wound up in different places. And uh, Peter is responsible for the translation of Rosa Luxemburg's collected works. He's also knows all, he's written about Fanon. He has a couple of books. Kevin wrote the book called Marx at the Margins that about Marx and, you know, kind of the rest of the world <laughs> beyond Europe. Um, and he also is a translator. But, and they published a new critique uh, issue of the Critique of the Gotha program by PM Press, which is really interesting how different the translation matters. Mm. But anyway, there are another group that kind of deserves in some fashion to be sitting at the table. I don't know why they're kind of the legacies of being from different places persist so long. I mean, there are efforts to undo that. You know, something like P- Paul Maddox Jr. in the Brooklyn Rail mm. probably publishes things from a number of different currents, even though it's not, you know, kind of advertised as such. But he does that. But I also want to question, in 1982, Noel then, Noel Ignatiev, then Ignatian and I, were part of an effort to organize a conference here in New York called No Easy Answers Left, all right? Uh, clever, right? Uh, kind of, it was the left was referred to both the political left position and left what was left over, mm. uh, and this was after basically all of the movements of the sixties had exhausted themselves. There was no longer any energy, and we probably got two hundred people, all right, to come, which is not bad, stuff like that, including people from zero work, people who had been in the weather underground. (laughs) And it was our conviction that because we, the two of us and some others, had reasons to talk seriously to all these different groups for different reasons, that they would all have reasons to talk to each other. Mm, We were wrong. (laughs) We were absolutely wrong. (laughs) So you're not telling us to organize From the very beginning (laughs) almost, okay, it basically the first thing that happened is people started arguing. Now, I I don't remember all the details. I was 40-something years ago now. But but anyway, I I do think that the far left needs to be a bigger, more powerful presence to effectively intervene in what's going on. Uh, And I know that the Antifada podcast is is listened to by hundreds of thousands, but... Not hundreds of thousands. (laughs) I like to think that someday we'll get hundreds and thousands. Hundreds or thousands is closer to the order of magnitude. Let's say 10,000 on a good day (laughs) when we have an excellent guest. I'm not trying to disparage anything No, 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 no. What what are you up to? What number is this? Oh, 206 or 7? 207. The the thing... the thing about this particular project, and I think this is something that you know you've struggled with over the years, and your conference is an example of it, is that it's all well and good to talk theory and to talk ideas, and even to the extent that we do like argumentation and debate on this podcast, you know, it's it's one thing to exist in this particular sort of media realm of discussion or whatever, and it's another thing 
to uh, try to figure out a way in which there's like practical importance yeah. and practical power that can be built. Right. And that obviously people, I think often nowadays, especially in the media sphere that we have, the very personalized social media sphere that we have and the phones that we have that are attached to us at all time, uh, think that taking political positions and listening to podcasts, and I fall into this as much as anybody else, is a substitute for those sort right. of things. Um, and I think that what one of the reasons why maybe we've talked about this war so much is because it feels, I think, for a lot of people, not just on the far left, but people all over the world, all across the political spectrum, as this sort of catastrophe, this human tragedy, this like great yeah. political, geopolitical crisis that's happening without any, without input and without any ability on any of our parts to actually intervene in a, in a real meaningful way, which is why I think the good way to look at Ukraine is, is through a lens of class, you know, is, is to understand, you know, that, that this is fundamentally at the end, not just geopolitical, but also too, that this represents some, a larger sort of battle between various different forces within the global capitalist sphere. And when we align ourselves, as you have done, I think very, um, very persuasively in this article, we align ourselves with the working classes, but without actually, of course, like, um, denigrating the forms of self-activity and self-organization that are happening on the ground, which in this particular instance is a nationalistic defense of one's yeah. society against aggression. So I do have one suggestion or proposal to make <clears throat> that I, I've talked to just a few people about. As I recall, during the time of the anti-Vietnam War movement here in the United States, that there were obviously a lot of things that individuals did. People burned draft cars. People ran away to, to Canada. People blockaded trains and things of that sort. People organized massive demonstrations. People burned down various kinds of government, you know, or military installations, whatever. Right? And the and as well, the overlapping of that anti-war movement with the remnants of the Black Liberation Movement were also attracted. Both of them attracted widespread international attention, so much so that there were oftentimes actions in various places around the world in solidarity, mm. in support of what the Americans were doing. It seems to me that I'm not aware yet that there's been any public demonstration of any kind here in the United States in open solidarity with what the Russian people who are fighting against their country have done. Mm. So far as they know, okay, they're fighting this battle alone. Now, mm -hmm. now, maybe that's not true in Europe. I wouldn't be surprised that it's not true in Europe. But it seems to me kind of trying to do something like that, of organizing some kind of sustained project to provide public support to those Russians who run the danger of being you know, kind of repressed by the Russian state, would be a pretty good thing for us to think about doing. There might be an element of that in, in what just happened in Georgia, uh, I'm not sure if you, you followed that, but there was uh, a, a, a bill passed in Georgia that was like some sort of anti-sedition act, the country of Georgia. And, oh, I thought uh, you were talking about right. the, the Atlanta City. forest business. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that would be... Oh, I, see. I know what you're referring to, to as well, right. but yeah. Um, and, and this was like, I guess, a Russian-style law or maybe perceived as being a Putinist maneuver of some sort. And there was mass protests against it. And I think part of that dynamic is probably that so many young Russian people have gone to Georgia and now there's that sort of the hotbed of like anti-Putinist Russian sentiment. It may well be that there are enough young Russians here even. I don't know how hard it's been for them to get into the country. Some of them may have been here from before and just have decided not to go back. That's probably easier.
Yeah. Um, uh, the, there's a huge, not, not just Ukrainian and Russian uh, societies are being revolutionized right now, but you have a situation that looks like, you know, the early mid 20th century where you have like massive diasporas of radicalized. Hell, it looks like, you know, post 1848 of like massive diasporas who are now all over the world, mostly Europe and the United States, which are like radicalized in various different ways, some good and some bad. And that is an interesting thing to think about is like, what, what do those people think? Who's speaking with them? In what way are we making connections with those people? And potentially if they go back, what could they do uh, in, yeah. in their homelands? You know, I want to maybe end this part of the discussion. And there's sure. a couple other things I want to talk to you about. Um, okay. And that'll maybe be a shift towards uh, the bonus part of this episode. So if you want to hear the rest of what we're going to talk about, I'm going to bring up Hassan Piker's fashion line, (laughs) uh, which is John Brown themed and see what one of the original race traders thinks of that. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your research into who really killed Rosa Luxemburg. Who did it? If you wouldn't mind talking about that for just a minute. Okay. Uh, That one first. Uh, But... So if you want to hear that, uh, everyone at home, please go to patreon.com slash the Antifada and support the show for $5 a month or for the whole year. You get a discount if you do that. And then when you do, just DM me and I'll send you a, a postcard and some stickers thanking you. So that's patreon.com slash the Antifada. And we'll be right back with John Garvey. Thank you, folks. Last uh, subject for me, at least you can yeah, continue. So... Rosa Luxemburg uh, met her unfortunate demise in a in, canal uh, in Berlin, right. which you can still go to. And we all know the official story, but what really happens? Well, you know, the reason why Andy knows this is that he and I were on a panel uh, together on the topic of what is socialism. I believe it was sponsored by the Platypus chapter well, yeah. at NYU or the New School, I forget. It was probably now six or seven years ago. So Andy, unfortunately, has a very good memory. <laughs> You'd rather I, this never you No, know, It was, in fact, true at the time that I was writing something that was never published, uh, a, a, a comprehensive account of the German Revolution and its interconnection with the Russian Revolution. And there was this other man on the panel, a professor from, I forget what institution, okay, who is a very, very, very traditional social democrat, as mm. I recall. And I think at one point he said something that kind of pigeonholed me as being sort of a relic of the old Leninist left. I'm forgetting mm. exactly, okay. And I wanted to prove to him that, in fact, that was not an accurate description. And I said, well, to give you an idea, I'm someone who is investigating the extent to which Lenin was responsible for the murder of Rosa Luxemburg. Something like that. Now, 